0: Support for the Legislative Gazette comes from New York State United Teachers, a union of professionals standing with more than 600,000 workers in education, human services, and healthcare with the Our Voice, Our Values, Our Union campaign and United University Professions, representing 37,000 academic and professional employees at SUNY campuses and teaching hospitals across New York State. Frederick E. Cole, President. UUPinfo.org. A fiscal watchdog group is using the freedom of information law to try to get New York State's Health Department to release more detailed data on the more than 42,000 New Yorkers who died during the COVID-19 pandemic. A previous FOIL request by the group, the Empire Center, was one of the factors that led Governor Andrew Cuomo's administration to disclose it had underestimated by half the number of nursing home residents who died in the pandemic. The Legislative Gazette's Karen DeWitt with more.
1: Bill Hammond is the health policy analyst for the Empire Center. He's seeking a detailed list of data about the deaths of New Yorkers from COVID-19, including those tracked by the date, county, and zip code, as well as confirmed cases of coronavirus by age group, race, and ethnicity. The Empire Center is also seeking details on nursing home deaths in each county and in individual facilities. Hammond says some of that data is partially available in a limited form on the health department website, He would also like to know by age group the average length of time between when someone tested positive for COVID until the time of their death.
2: The strategy here is to ask for everything, the kitchen sink.
1: Hammond says other state and municipal health departments have released more detailed numbers. Cuomo and his top aides, including the state's health commissioner, Dr. Howard Zucker, have become embroiled in a controversy over the deaths of nursing home residents during the pandemic. At issue is a March 25th state directive. It required the homes to take back COVID-positive patients from hospitals. It was later rescinded. Critics say that led to the spread of the disease in the homes and additional deaths. Zucker, in a report issued in July of 2020, blamed nursing home employees and visitors for bringing the virus into the homes. The U.S. Attorney for Eastern New York is investigating whether the Cuomo administration deliberately covered up the true number of deaths. Hammond believes the state health department may be withholding the data for political reasons.
2: The health department has participated along with the governor in hiding data, in twisting facts, in quoting statistics that are misleading. And at the same time, it has been holding back the more complete release of statistics and data that the public could use to sort of fact check what the politicians are saying.
1: A previous FOIL request by the Empire Center in part led to the disclosure by the health department that the deaths of nursing home and other adult long-term care residents from COVID, previously reported to be around 9,000, was more accurately closer to 15,000. A judge in early February ordered the Cuomo administration to disclose the data. That came shortly after the state's attorney general, Letitia James, issued a report finding that nursing home deaths had been undercounted by 50 percent. Though the Empire Center leans conservative and Cuomo is a Democrat, Hammond says it's not about trying to embarrass the governor politically. He says matters of life and death are not ideological. And he says the public, including historians and scientists, have the right to know the details of what happened in New York, which was for a time the world's epicenter
2: for the disease. Just the way in which you saw a lot of people referring back to the 1918 flu pandemic, This is another one of those kind of historic events, only we're approaching it with a lot more scientific sophistication. And a lot of it relies on data. The state has boatloads of data and the world would benefit from that data being public.
1: Obtaining all the data through FOIL is likely to take months. Hammond says his group is prepared to go to court again if the State Department does not heed their request. In Albany, I'm Karen DeWitt.
0: listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustina. Joining us now, Legislative Gazette political observer Alan Charton. Let's go to New York City. Revised vote counts in the city's mayoral primary show. Democrat Eric Adams has maintained a thin lead. Election officials made their second attempt Wednesday to report early tallies in the race based on rank choice tabulation. Their first effort Tuesday turned into a debacle when they accidentally included 135,000 test ballots in the vote totals. The corrected results still don't paint a complete picture of the race. Nearly 125,000 absentee ballots have yet to be counted. This week's blunder, though, says the AP by the Board of Elections, is only the latest in a long history of mistakes, including mistakenly purging thousands of voters' equipment failures and long lines at the polls. Critics, including many state lawmakers, say the board's partisan structure has led to patronage and incompetence and say the latest mistake shows it's time that big changes were
3: considered. That's right, David. It's all about patronage. That's who these people are. These people are not honest brokers who are there to watch these elections and care about them. They are there in order to uh, get a job. They are not doing the appropriate work. It's been disgusting all along. We've always known about who they are and what this is about. A few schleps do all the work, and then the people at the top at the Board of Elections go to a meeting. They hold up their hands. They do this or that. But in fact, they're mostly connected people, and that's the last thing we should be doing. Now, that is the kind of thing that will give solace to somebody like Donald Trump, who wants to push the big lie that all elections are corrupted. And that's why this is such a serious situation, especially in New York. And it gives him the chance to say, hey, look, this is what I've been telling you all along. These elections are fixed. And it's a terrible thing that we are facing. Legislative
0: Gazette political observer Alan Charton. listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustina. At a rally outside the governor's mansion in Albany last weekend, activists and elected officials demanded an increase in clemencies granted to the incarcerated. The Legislative Gazette's Dave Lucas was there and filed this report.
4: What do we need? Clemency! When do we need it? Now!
0: Advocates stood outside the Eagle Street
4: mansion Saturday afternoon, calling on Governor Andrew Cuomo's office to use executive powers to grant clemencies four times a year to 50 men and 50 women each time, totaling 400 clemencies per year. Democratic Albany County Legislator Sam Fine says the time is right for a change.
5: This is the neighborhood I live in here, the mansion neighborhood. I live at the bottom of the street there. And at the bottom of the street, you have families that have been torn apart by a racist and unjust criminal justice system. That's right. And at the bottom of the street, in the south end of Albany, in Arbor Hill and in West Hill, you have families that have been, um, that, that have had their problems. Their, uh, wealth stolen from them you've had families that have been put in a situation because of systemic racism because of a lack of resources that have created that have fed this uh criminal justice system so the time so now is the time to take action we've seen the state legislature was in session down there uh they, they they passed a lot of progressive legislation that we're thankful for but they failed to take action on our on reforming our criminal justice system, on
4: reforming our parole system. John Malazo with Vocal Albany says gatherings like Saturdays have been successful.
3: This year, just just working through Vocal, we've gotten seven bills passed through stuff like this, doing stuff in the community, protesting. So it's it gives it gives a voice to the people, and it allows the people in power to see. What's going on and how we feel about things. Because at the end of the day, they do work for us.
4: Between 2017 and 2020, Cuomo reportedly received 6,405 clemency petitions, but granted clemency in just 95 cases. Albany Common Council Ward 6 candidate Gabriella Romero, just off a Democratic primary victory. Says clemency is important to the local community.
6: It's a great tool right now in in while we're waiting for this big criminal justice system uh, shift. Uh, but we still need to keep our eyes on the prize and remember what we're doing as activists in this de- to decarcerate, uh, eliminate this punitive system, eliminate these racial uh, racist structures.
4: Lukey Forbes, a community organizer for Vocal New York, was arrested in Albany when he was 15, convicted in an assault case, and released at age 24 after winning an appeal. In jail, Forbes obtained his GED and read over 800 books while researching the justice system. He made an unsuccessful run for mayor of Albany this year. Forbes says prisons are overpopulated and inmates who have rehabilitated themselves should be set free via clemency.
7: We need to let them back out so that they can continue to be a part of our society. And we see how things like COVID-19 has shown how the prison system is not equipped for certain things to just transpire. They had to release people on abundance without any real proper method. This is the first time anything's like that has shown the flaws in our system, and we need to use this to continue to move forward and fix those flaws. We need to grant clemency four times a year instead of the way that it is going right now.
4: Clemencies are most often granted between Christmas and New Year's Day. On December twenty-fourth, 2020, the governor released a list of pardons and commutations to 21 people, saying, quote, In New York, win. we believe the law should be just as well as compassionate.
1: Our families are suffering and we can't wait. Clemency means justice in New York State.
4: Cuomo's office did not respond to a request for comment. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Dave Lucas.
0: New York U.S. Senator Kirsten Gillibrand is seeking to include legislation to strengthen workers' rights in a federal infrastructure package. The Democrat gathered with union leaders and local officials in Albany this week. The Legislative Gazette's Lucas Willard reports.
8: At the Albany Labor Temple, Senator Gillibrand made a pitch for the so-called Protecting the Right to Organize Act.
6: The PRO Act is a piece of legislation that is so long overdue, but it works to strengthen our local labor union laws and change some of the landscape for working people.
8: The bill has been kicking around since before Democrats took control of Congress by a slim margin in January. Among its provisions, the legislation would attempt to target employers who violate workers' rights, discourage retaliation, and authorize a private right of action for workers' rights violations. It would also support workers' rights to secondary boycotts, support collecting fair share fees, work to modernize union elections, and facilitate initial collective bargaining agreements. And it would target ambiguous wording, the Democrat says, allows employers to quote-unquote misclassify employees as supervisors and independent contractors. Gillibrand wants the legislation to be included in ongoing infrastructure negotiations.
6: So we know that if we can build up our unions and build up the ability of working people to have a voice in this economy, it will change everything. I also want to make sure that these infrastructure investments that we're about to make through our Build Back Better plan actually allows for more union-supported jobs.
8: Gillibrand is referring to the economic stimulus and infrastructure plan proposed by President Joe Biden, that includes the American Rescue Plan passed earlier this year, the American Jobs Plan infrastructure package, and the American Families Plan to support childcare, paid leave, and other issues. With the focus in Washington now on infrastructure, the Democratic Senate remains fractured in its own negotiations toward a scaled-down $1.2 trillion hard infrastructure bill. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer is standing behind a two-pronged approach, believing a bipartisan infrastructure bill is only achievable if all 50 Democrats also line up behind a bill that can be approved through budget reconciliation to avoid a filibuster. New York's junior senator agrees with that approach.
6: The purpose of allowing our more moderate senators to negotiate a bipartisan infrastructure bill is to show that they can bring people together and to find common ground on a very small sliver of what needs to be done. Once that is concluded, if it does conclude, and if it is finalized, the purpose of that negotiation was to make sure that our entire caucus is with us on a larger bill. I will only support the smaller bill if there is a larger bill. And I will only support a smaller bill if it's included in the assumptions of the larger bill.
8: Gillibrand supports ending the Senate filibuster. House Rules Committee Chair Jim McGovern, a Democrat from Massachusetts' 2nd District, was asked about the infrastructure talks on WAMC's congressional corner Tuesday.
4: Speaker Pelosi has said uh, we're not going to send over an infrastructure bill to the Senate. Um, or, you know, um, until um, until we pass a, a reconciliation bill that deals with human infrastructure uh, that helps support families and children and helps uh, you know, deal with issues like housing, uh, which are all major uh, challenges in, the, in this country.
8: Mark Emanation, director of the Capital District Labor Federation, says as the recovery from the pandemic is leaving many behind, passing the PRO Act to strengthen unions and the ability to join a union is all the more important.
4: Our economy has recovered a little bit. People are working. The unemployment around here is lower than the national average. But rents, mortgages, groceries, gasoline, Medical, everything is going sky high.
8: At the Albany Labor Temple alongside Gillibrand, Emanation mentioned a food distribution event in Albany's South End earlier in the day.
4: If we pass the PRO Act and we get everyone that wants to be in a union in a union, poverty will decline and we won't have to do these damn food distributions like we've done.
8: For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Lucas Willard.
0: listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustina. The University at Albany has been tapped to partner on a National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration Severe Weather Research Effort. The Cooperative Institute for Severe and High-Impact Weather Research and Operations will be led by the University of Oklahoma and comes with an award of up to $208 million over the next five years. The well, Legislative Gazette's Jim Lavoulis spoke with Chris Thorncroft, who directs UAlbany's Atmospheric Sciences Research Center, to learn about the effort.
9: This is a cooperative institute funded by NOAA. and uh, There are a number of cooperative institutes uh, around the country, but this one is dedicated to uh, better understanding uh, the causes uh, of extreme weather uh, in a changing climate and our ability not only to predict the extreme weather, but also to communicate it to various communities and users of weather information. And uh, we're very excited to be a partner on this project.
5: Are there specific areas of expertise or topics that researchers at UAlbany will focus on during this project?
9: Yes, so at UAlbany uh, it's, uh, it's in itself is a collaboration which is very exciting between uh, the Atmospheric Sciences Research Center, the uh, Department of Atmospheric and Environmental Science, and also the College of Emergency Preparedness, Homeland Security, and Cybersecurity. And um, we will be focusing on um, understanding extreme weather. Um, we, ha- we will have some uh, emphasis uh, on the Northeast, but also nationally. Um, but also with the with the new College of Emergency Preparedness, Homeland Security, and Cybersecurity, it's called CEHC, uh, we will be also working on this communication and science, uh, the social science aspects. How do we uh, create warnings that are gonna be uh, well received and understood by people that need to make decisions, and that could be emergency managers, it could be government, and it also could be uh, the public.
5: And now the NOAA partnership is being led by the University of Oklahoma and includes other schools, including Texas Tech. Now, those schools obviously have different weather than upstate New York or the Northeast. Will there be coordination between the schools to learn how detection and response to, say, a tornado might be beneficial for something like a snowstorm or a nor'easter or vice versa?
9: Well, this is, this is a national uh, institute, so we will be dealing nas- with national problems. And so even, even us living in the northeast, while we'll obviously have some local interest in the winter weather especially, uh, we will be also uh, considering uh, problems that affect the country as a whole. So, and if, yes, so there will be a collaboration on all types of extreme weather, well, be it uh, tornadoes, winter storms, hurricanes. Um, we also There's also an area of, that's pretty exciting called seasonal, subseasonal to seasonal uh, timescales where we're looking at timescales uh, beyond the normal day to a week. We're going to be up to two weeks, maybe even a month or two. So that's another area of research that we will be at the Institute and, and we will be contributing to.
5: And the award for the partnership is for five years with the potential for another five years based on successful performance. Do you know how that performance uh, will be determined?
9: Well, this co- it will be determined uh, on uh, the, the, the research uh, that benefits NOAA, and uh, this particular cooperative institute is not new. This is, I believe this was the first cooperative institute, so this has existed for decades. So led by the University of Oklahoma, it's had an excellent track record of working with, with NOAA and del- delivering on what it's uh, supposed to do. So it will be, it will be assessed based on the, the research and, and its application to, NOAA, to the NOAA mission.
5: And this effort uh, comes ahead of the anticipated launching of Albany's uh, E-Tech Center, a $180 million research and development complex. Uh, how might that help in this effort, or will
9: it? It, it is a great story. Uh, it will help us, for sure. And um, as Director of Atmospheric Sciences Research Center, I'm so excited about the new building. Let me tell you about who's actually going into the building. It is it's ASRC. Uh, it is the Department of Atmospheric and Environmental Sciences. It is the new college, CHC, but also it will include the New York State Mesonet, which is an observing system of uh, observations around the whole uh, whole state looking at weather. Uh, it will also include the local office of the National Weather Service. And so this uh, ecosystem that we have going here um, is separated at the moment across the campus and in different buildings. Now we're going to be moving into this building, uh, and this, this grant actually brings uh, those various entities closer together for the next five years, hopefully for the next 10 years, to work on these really important societal problems.
5: And that center is set to launch this fall. Uh, Chris Thorncroft directs UAlbany's Atmospheric Sciences Research Center, the New York State Mesonets, and Center of Excellence in Weather and Climate Analytics. Chris, thank you very much for your time. Thank you.
0: Listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustina. They are furry little caterpillars in trees munching on leaves. Some are crawling on the sides of houses or dropping from trees on your head. Northern New York and Vermont are experiencing an infestation of gypsy moth caterpillars, and there are so many of the insects that trees are being defoliated across the region. This week, The Clinton County Soil and Water Conservation District hosted an informational webinar on the gypsy moth infestation, and the Legislative Gazette's Pat Bradley was there.
10: Although it's referred to as a gypsy moth infestation, it's actually the insect's larval or caterpillar stage that is doing the damage. During the virtual meeting, New York State Department of Environmental Conservation, Forest Health, forester and arborist Rob Cole outlined the life cycle and how the caterpillars feeding on leaves can damage trees.
7: We are in the later caterpillar stages at this point but this is when the defoliation occurs. The defoliation becomes noticeable uh, late May, early June uh, and then it hits its peak the last week of June or so. Uh, once those caterpillars reach their largest larval stages, they're eating a lot of leaf material, you know, a square foot or more a day. Uh, I think we're moving into those stages now. We're seeing some of the bigger caterpillars out there. And soon, within the next uh, couple weeks, we should uh, expect to see them start to pupate. And then into August is when we'll start seeing the adults emerge and the adult moth out there.
10: Although the current caterpillar numbers will reach peak sometime in the next couple weeks, Cole said such large infestations are cyclical and will probably repeat next spring.
7: The outbreak that we're seeing now probably gonna last a couple of years. That's typical two to three years for an outbreak. These outbreaks only coming around every 10 or 15 years or so. This year, severe defoliation going on. Uh, three major areas across the state. First is the eastern Adirondacks from Clinton County all the way south to Schenectady County, basically the Northway Corridor along Lake George and Lake Champlain. Oneida uh, and Oswego County really spread out and really the Mohawk Valley in its entirety is experiencing a very significant defoliation right now as well. And then Finger Lakes area, that area of uh, severe defoliation has expanded quite a bit this year.
10: Finger Lakes region DEC senior forester Gary Copeland detailed the progression of the infestation that began there in 2019. He said places that were impacted last year are again experiencing severe infestations this year.
7: What we saw out here, I would imagine you're going to see in your areas as well. And probably one of the most shocking and and I think probably the best thing I, I could probably share is that we ran out of arborist support early. And by that, I mean, the arborists were just so overwhelmed that it became pretty difficult last year for arborists to keep up with clients, potential clients. And it's even harder this year.
10: But DEC Adirondack Region Senior Forester Christy Barber said turning to arborists to help treat trees for pests like the gypsy moth caterpillar is problematic in Clinton County. There are none in Clinton County. I wanted to try to find someone in Clinton County and there was nobody. You can watch the complete webinar on the gypsy moth infestation at wamc.org. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Pat Bradley.
0: And that about does it for this week's show. We had help from the New York State Public Radio Network. For copies, call 1-800-323-9262. That's 1-800-323-9262. Ask for program number 2127. Or just listen or schedule a podcast on the web at wamc.org. And join us again next week at this same time for more news on New York State government and politics. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm David Gustina.